our neighbors, as well as many of the neighborhoods around us, value the color green in their yard. It is the ever-pursuit of having a green grassed yard. It's amazing uh, what we'll do to ensure that happens. It is a, a constant vigil for those who want a green yard. Uh, this time of year, of course, we're raking and covering, uh, making sure that no, nothing is covering up our green yard. We've also have gone through and put little holes all through our yard to ensure that the, uh, it's aerated and it uh, gets everything it needs. And then we've, we've put the seed, overseeded, or perhaps put down some seed to ensure that come spring we've got a nice, pretty green yard. And, and then we'll put fertilizer as well. And, and some of you may have been watering, though. You've been thankful that this past week we've not needed to water because we're thinking, oh, great, my grass is growing. And uh, it is a constant uh, vigil to ensure that it stays green. And then every once in a while... We'll go inspect our, our yard and we'll see uh, something green, but it's a blade that we don't like. It's a shape we don't like. It's not the grass we planted and, and something has cropped up from the ground itself. And, and we think, how did this happen? It, it's come up and so we are on battle and we put all kinds of various sprays to ensure that these weeds do not grow. It's amazing how much time we spend to make sure that the area around our house is green. <laughs> what if it was orange? Wouldn't life be easier then? You know? Uh, but nonetheless, it's green. I just would present to you that there is something infinitely more valuable, something that is much more desirable in Jesus Christ. And I would just argue before you that. Do we dare put more vigilance in our yards than the life of Christ in our life? I would hope not, and I would argue that we do not, we would not, should not, because we become shallow people if we do. And so, it is with this thought in mind that Hebrews was written, part of what was written was to ensure that those who are professing Christ stays in the fellowship and trust and faith of Jesus Christ. And so in that goal, the author is constantly exalting who Christ is. And also, with that exaltation of Christ, is exhortations to the believers. Because Christ is so great, make sure you don't leave him. Because Christ is so great, make sure you're considering him. Because he's so great, stay faithful to the end. And that's kind of the theme throughout the, the book up to this point and will be all throughout the book of Hebrews. And so we find ourselves in chapter 3. We're going to finish up chapter 3. Remember chapter 1, we talked about how Jesus is greater than the prophets, greater than the angels. And, and chapter 2, he's greater than Moses himself, that he is the builder of the house, whereas Moses was just a servant, a servant of the house. And so he tells us that we make sure in chapter 2 that we pay close attention to the gospel, that we don't drift away from it. Uh, that we consider Christ in our thoughts. And that's what we looked at last time. We talked about why we are to consider Christ uh, in chapter 3, verse 1. That he's the apostle of our faith, the high priest of our confession. That he was faithful. That he is the creator of the house. 
Uh, and so for these reasons uh, and all that Christ has accomplished in coming as a man, we consider him. And so I want to continue that vein because in chapter 3, verse 7, he starts going back to the Old Testament. And he refers back to Psalm 95, verse 7, 11. And starts quoting from that chapter, which in turn is referencing events that occur in Exodus chapter 17, uh, as well as Numbers chapter 14. It's the story of Moses leaving with the people of Israel out of Egypt and going to the promised land. And along the way, how they fell away from God. And so God's... Uh, resulting punishment that came to these people who witnessed the Red Sea parting. Can you imagine that? Imagine walking through the Red Sea uh, and knowing that God did it. Pharaoh's army was behind you. Death was certain until God intervened and bam, you see water on both sides and dry land in front of you. These are the same people who every day would wake up and eat the manna that God himself has brought to them. They ate daily of tasted heavenly food. Uh, in their life. These are the ones who experienced the death angel that came and took out the firstborn of Egypt, uh, except for those who had the Passover lamb over the door. These are the ones who experienced the locusts, the frogs, uh, the Nile River turning to blood. They experienced the miracles of God. They saw the, the pillar uh, of a cloud that would guide them the day and the pillar of fire at night. They were daily exposed to supernatural events of God. But yet, they turned away from God. And so the Hebrew author is saying, consider this. We are no greater than these who followed God in the days of Egypt and what was exposed to them. Just like they could fall away, we too can desert our faith. We can uh, abandon Christ. And so this is written to discourage that. So let's read chapter 3, verse 7. We'll uh, read verses 7 through 11 again, but then we'll go to the end of the chapter in verse 19. And so let's uh, stand as we read this to God, together in honor of God's word. <laughs> Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end, firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You may be seated. Chapter 3, verse 6. He tells us this condition, we are God's house, if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We are God's 
house if we hold on to the gospel. We see in chapter 3, verse 14, uh, something similar. We, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, what this emphasizes is that the gospel and those who are followers of Christ, those who profess Jesus, they are not believers merely because they professed in Christ. Scripture says in 2 Timothy 2 that the God's foundation stands sure, having this, the Lord knows those who are His. All right, so Only God knows everyone's heart. But then the second foundation is that those who name the name of Christ departs from iniquity. And so he's saying that there is not just how you begin that is important. That a follower of Christ not only begins, but ends well. It is not just the entry, but it is the process that is important in defining who a follower of Christ is. And so what he's saying is, if you are God's house, then an inherent quality of being a part of God's house is that you will stay true to the end. If you are partakers of Christ, then the characteristic of a partaker of Christ is one who will go to the end. All right, it's kind of like, um, well, you know, ladies, uh, you know, the, the wedding is huge, isn't it? Uh, it is important. Uh, it is the beginning. Uh, since you were young, you were thinking about this. But let me assure you guys, the wedding is not it by itself. All right, because it is not indeed a wedding unless there is a marriage. All right, the entry was important. But just as important is the process that continues afterwards. Um, if you are got a, a, an acceptance letter from a university, that's important. But you are not a college student until you do the process. You attend class. All right? You do the work. If you are part of the military, it is important that you enlist. That is important. But just as important as enlisting is the basic training. It is being there when they tell you. Uh, when you are in a gym, it is important to sign up in the gym. But it is not working out until you show up at the gym. Otherwise, you just waste money. All right? Uh, so what I would just present to you that the gospel is much the same. The entry is important where you came and you acknowledged Jesus as your Savior, your Lord. You confessed your sin and you said, Jesus will be my king. I will treasure him. I trust in him. But just as important is the day after that and the day after that. And that there is a process that begins of us turning to the Lord and trusting in him. So with that thought in mind, he says, make sure that you're on guard that you're considering Jesus Christ. That this is a, 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 as in chapter 3 verse 1, that this is an attitude that we are continuing. That he is important. Just as if we are vigilant to make sure that grass is grass and not weeds. We want to make sure that in our life, in our heart, Jesus is foremost. He is our treasure. And so, in chapters 3 verse 7 11, he, he hearkens back to Genesis, or uh, back to Exodus and what happens there. And based on this idea, remembering these folks who fell away from God and what God did with them because they hardened their hearts. Verse 12, he says, take care. Take care, brothers. And so what I wish to share with you is simply because we have 
and we live and serve a great Christ. We want to center our mind on him. Therefore, we tend to our own heart. We tend to our own heart. Notice in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil and unbelieving heart. You know what the greatest enemy in your life is? You, you have all kinds of enemies, folks who, uh, who hate Christ. Uh, you've got the, the systems of the world that says, you know what, to say that Christ is the only way is outdated and ignorant. I can't believe you think such things. Uh, you've got those of science who says, you believe these things, that how God created the world? You are a fool indeed. And then you've got the, the, the messages of the media and all around us is saying, live for materials and live for these things of this world. These are all kinds of enemies that we'll have in our life. But I just wish to share with you that the greatest enemy is none of those. The greatest enemy walks with you everywhere you go. It's in your own heart. It is in your own mind. Just as my own lawn somehow props up and, and brings up weeds in my own heart, there will be anti-Christ thoughts and pro-self thoughts. And these things will pop up in my life. And so he says, take care or take heed. Look, be on guard. You see this kind of re- repeated throughout. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. 2 Peter 1, 10 says, be diligent to confirm your election and your calling. Proverbs 4, 23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flows the springs of life. You know, uh, going back to that wedding uh, date, Hopefully that was a date, if you experienced that, that changed your life. Um, it did so for me. And I constantly tend to my own heart to make sure the marriage is still a marriage. Because when a marriage goes astray, it began in the mind and in the heart. And so there's not a day that goes by that I don't look at the picture of my bride that I keep it in my office, that I can see, there's my wife. We wrote our own vows uh, on our wedding day. And so I got a copy of those vows, and I have it on my desk in my office to remind myself of the promises made to a person several years ago. And that will give me a direction for the rest of my life. Why do I do that? Because I know my own heart. That without reminders, without a recorrecting in my mind, my, my mind will go against the moorings that put, my, put me uh, attached to my wife in 1997. That, that's just how nature is, how people are. We, we go that way. And so I constantly tend to my own heart to ensure that what happens outside of my marriage is true on the inside of my heart. Because if that doesn't happen, then it becomes hollow. And before long, the marriage can itself disintegrate to the point of being dissolved. There is a tending to one another, tend to our own hearts in marriage. And just as I affix myself to my wife, I also am affixing my soul to Jesus Christ. I'm trusting in him. And just as sure as I do that with my marriage, I need to do so even more with my Savior, Jesus Christ. That I constantly trying to read his word, to hear a word from him, to uh, reconnect my heart, my soul with the things of Jesus Christ. To talk to him. In the midst of praying, sometimes we forget that we're talking to someone. Isn't that funny how that happens? Uh, you know, we get so focused on praying and our attention is on how we're talking that 
uh, we stop thinking about who we're talking to. You don't do that with anyone else, do you? I mean, you don't do that at your, uh, your, your meal time with your family and focus on, okay, this is how I'm going to talk to my wife. This is going to how I'm talking to my daughter. No, the primary thought is this is my daughter. What's been going on in your life? Tell me about your day. It is, is, is driven by a person. And so we need to have that time of daily tending to our hearts. Why? Well, verse 8 tells us a little bit why. Do not harden your hearts as in rebellion on the day of testing. This is what happened back in the Old Testament day. And so notice what he says in verse 12. Take care, brothers. Why? Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Evil, unbelieving heart. How do you get an evil, unbelieving heart? What do you have to do to get one of those? Nothing. That's it. You just sit there and it'll crop right up just like in your lawn. Next thing you know, you got weeds everywhere. And so too, in your life, if you want an evil, unbelieving heart, all you've got to do is absolutely nothing. It will happen. Now, what is it about this evil, unbelieving heart? It will lead you to fall away from the living God. You understand that sin is in a constant war with our soul. It is constant. It is daily. And so just as this, the sin is daily tempting us to, to uh, seek and love someone else and something else other than Jesus Christ, we need to daily get in the Word of God. Now listen, we pray and read the Word of God not to get extra credit. We, we don't pray and read the Word of God just to uh, make ourselves feel good. We don't pray and read the Word of God so that we can have a good day. As if it's our lucky rabbit's foot that we put in our pocket. And if we don't do it, bam, everything bad's going to happen. Guess what? Everything bad might happen anyway. Whether or not you read the word of God does not push away bad things happening. Why do we read the word of God? Why do we pray? Because we need it. Because we we need it. Just as sure as I'll drink water and eat food that we need to have a reconnecting of our heart with the presence of Christ. And so tend to our hearts. Take care, brothers. Now, I read in verse 13. There's something else we do. Because of the greatness of our Christ, because we were centering our minds on our great Christ, we not only tend to our own hearts... But we also attend to one another. Attend to one another. Verse 13. But exhort one another. Exhort one another. Every day. As long as it is called today. Now he's going back to verse 7. Quoting from Psalm 95. It says today if you hear his voice. He says you know just like it said back then. It's still today. As long as it's today. Then listen Pay attention. Exhort one another because we have a great Christ. And Christ, our affections toward him, can go away so easily, so quickly because of the competition of the world around us. Tend to your own hearts, but attend to one another. Why? That none of you may be hardened by sin. Hardened by sin. That's the idea of uh, a calloused hand. 
You know that you do something so often, so frequently, that it thickens your skin with the idea that soon you stop feeling the pain that it causes. If you ever play guitars, you'll get calluses on your fingers because of the pressing of the strain, the constant motion. And that becomes a good thing because playing guitars becomes a lot easier when you have calluses on your hands. Now listen, your heart can abuse the Spirit of Christ and his prompting you to do what is right and wrong and that you say no to Jesus and it causes a pain and you don't like that pain and so you think of strategies and ways and mentalities of of doling the pain and so the next time when that opportunity comes to obey him or disobey him you think you know what I, I disobeyed him once again it's a lot easier now to disobey him again because my heart is developing now a thickening of the skin I no longer feel the prompting of the spirit in my life as bad it's not as convicting as it used to be and so bam opportunity comes again it's much easier much easier three times as easier to disobey Christ now eventually it get, it, you get to the point where there is no thought anymore and when someone says to you dear brother dear sister do you not understand that what you're wrong, doing is wrong it is disobedient to the scripture you will say to him because of your callous natures you must be wrong yourself because this gives me so much pleasure this gives me so much happiness surely god would not prohibit such a thing from me and besides i think your interpretation is probably wrong anyway i'm sure someone else has other interpretations and i'm going to go with them that accommodates my way of thinking welcome to a calloused heart and the sad reality is is god could be speaking to you and you no longer hear it you no longer sense it therefore i need a brother or sister to come and tell me and warn me if you ever will see someone cross a road that a car is coming will you not yell and scream if a fire is burning down and you see someone trapped inside will you not yell and scream if spiritually you see someone going down a direction it is upon us as a brother and sister in Christ to yell and scream if need be to get their attention because of where their heart is going notice why do we exhort one another because of the hardening of our sin but also because of the deceitfulness of our sin something about sin makes it so we forget forget about the negative aspects of sin and all that we think about are the benefits of that sin you see as we study in in exodus the the case that he's looking back to the people were constantly continually coming back to moses and when things got a little bit tough and and leaving egypt and going to the promised land they were getting very thirsty they would come up to him and say Moses, why did you lead us out here in this desert? We had plenty of drink in Egypt. We had plenty of food. Oh, we long for the meat of Egypt. And all that sin did was deceive him. And all they could think of was the good of Egypt. And somehow they forgot about the whips. Somehow they forgot about the fact that they were constantly in labor. Women... And children and men of all ages were constantly working with one another, dying on the fields. Somehow, sin made it so they forget about these things. And all they could remember was, man, wasn't that some good meat in Egypt? Sin blinds you. Satan gets you not just by uh, putting thoughts into your brain, but by keeping thoughts from getting into your brain. And so there is a deceitfulness about this. And we are, you understand, our capacity to deceive ourselves. We have great capacity to deceive ourselves. I've shared with you before, if you ever argue that, 
just consider the show American Idol and you see plenty of people who deceive themselves in thinking that they could sing. You know, and unfortunately, they never had a brother or sister that told them the truth. You know, they want to be nurturing and say, oh, you got a sweet voice. You could, you could make it on TV. And they get on TV and make absolute fool of themselves because everyone else can see, hey, you're lousy. Why? How does that happen? Because we can deceive ourselves. One of the great things about having a wife is that they'll tell you the truth. You know, I'll tell you the truth. When you have children, they'll tell you truth in harsh ways. If I ever thought I was sweet, my children would, would disabuse me of that and say, no, you're not a sweet man. Like, oh, no. We can deceive ourselves. We want to think the best of ourselves. We need, we need one another because sin has a hardening capacity. Sin is a deceitful thing. And I need someone to tell me and exhort me when I'm going right. It's kind of like a, a clock. You remember before we had the watches like we did, some of you might still have the wind-up deals. And things about wind-up clocks and watches is that it kind of lose time from every once in a while. And our own watches would do that. And so we need to have the constant reference points. You know, it used to be the churches and the steeples of the day, and now it's the atomic clocks that we might see from time to time. And we look at it and think, oh, that thing is, is right. Let me adjust my clock accordingly. That's what brothers and sisters in Christ are to be. As we're walking along, sometimes in our own selfishness, we kind of get astray because we're comparing ourselves to ourselves. And that's never a good standard. And so every once in a while, someone comes into our life and points us to Christ. And we think, ah, yes, that's the quality that I need in my life. Let me see how they're doing that. Let me readjust my life. And so there is the attending to one another that is important. Notice who's doing this. Verse 13, exhort one another. I would just present to you that a church that is healthy is resting the word of God, not just for me. Okay? Not just me. One day a week isn't going to cut it for me or for you. What is needed is for everyone, everyone to exhort one another. To have within your heart an affection to Jesus Christ and devotion to him. That you're learning of the word of God. That you can say to Robert, say, Robert, brother, let me share with you what I learned today. And that Miss Peggy can say, let me share with you what I've learned today. And the sad reality is that we don't do that. And I think maybe because we don't have it. Maybe we don't have a time with the word each day. Do you understand how dangerous this is? To have a whole group of people that are anemic and studying the word of God. And having a heart with the word of God. It is imperative that there are hot coals around you for you to maintain your intensity and your heat. The fact is, I need you. I need you to be on fire for the Lord. Every single one of you. And if you look at someone else, they need you to be on fire for the Lord. And for someone to say, I will not be part of that church, it is to rob me, as rob the others, 
of the fire that you can bring. Exhort one another every day. This lets me know that, again, Sunday morning alone is not going to need it. This is, this is where the small group has to happen. There has to be a group of people that you know, that you love, that you pray with, that you exhort, that they exhort you, that you can uh, talk to on a daily basis. Friends, I don't have to go to church. I get to go to church. That's our mentality. For those who treasure Christ... It's not someone making me do anything. I just love Christ and I want to be around those who also love Christ and I need them. I need them. For verse 14. For we share in Christ. How do we demonstrate that? How do we demonstrate that we're sharing Christ? If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 13, 21 tells us how this happens. At the end it says... God equips you with everything good that you may do his will, working in, in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So that what the Bible is teaching me is God has given me the strength to endure to the end. But, listen, one of the methods that he's given is sitting right next to you. How will you endure to the end? It's going to happen When a brother and sister exhorts you. It's going to happen when you have time in the word of God and prayer. Listen. The sad mentality of American church is that church is extra. It's bonus. It's extra credit. But when I read the word of God. It tells me that the community of people in faith. Is God's tool to keep us preserving to the end. You know, we often talk about and we emphasize that we're saved by grace through faith. And so we don't put church in that. We don't say, you know, church, therefore you have to be a member of the church to be saved. No, you do not have to be a member of a church to be saved because it is done by grace through faith. But listen, as I read this passage, if I want to be saved, if I am saved, if I will continue to the end, it requires that I'm a part of a church. I need a brother and sister that will exhort me every day. And I need to exhort someone else every day. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together about the community of faith. Now, you just need to know a little context. Um, he was a part of a group uh, called the Confessing Church back in 1933 to 45 that came as a, a counter the, to the German Christian church movement uh, that was a Nazi uh, tool. And as the Nazis spread and dominated, the confessing church went underground. They started a seminary, a preacher's seminary uh, there near the Baltic Sea in 1935. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the, the teacher. Uh, there was about 19 men or 25 students together. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a 29-year-old man teaching them, and they had a life together. They disciplined themselves together. Daily prayers, meditation, worship, study, recreation, work, they all did this together. Uh, Then the seminary was closed in 1937 by the Nazi police, and they were put under arrest. That year he was put under arrest. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship. But then in 1938, he wrote this book called Life Together. He was hanged later on at the age of 39. But some of the things he writes 
includes this. The physical presence of our Christians is a surge of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trotted underfoot by those who have the gift every day. Among earnest Christians in the church today, there is a growing desire to meet together with other Christians in the rest periods of the work for common life under the word. Communal life is again being recognized by Christians today as the grace that is. And the extraordinary, the roses and lilies of the Christian life. If someone asks a Christian, where is your salvation, your righteousness? He can never point to himself. He points to the word of God in Christ Jesus, which assures him of salvation and righteousness. He is as alert as possible to this word because he daily hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He daily desires the redeeming word. But God has put this word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word and the witness of a brother in the mouth of men. Therefore, the Christians need another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again and again. And when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for he himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bear and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. That Christ is in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother is sure. And we ask ourselves, why don't we have that mentality? I think it may be because we don't think ourselves in a war. We don't think ourselves that the next time we see someone may be in prison. But you need to understand that there is a war going on. And it is for the soul of the person next to you. Satan would like nothing better than to allure them away with the charms of this world. And it could very well be that God has ordained this world so that their perseverance is dependent on the strength and power of the grace of Christ. And it could be that you're the vessel that keeps that brother and sister true to the Lord. He goes on and talks about these who left in Egypt, how they sinned. Notice verse 18 and 19. I want to bring out this thought. They were disobedient. Verse 18. Verse 19. He equates disobedience with unbelief. Am I asking you to make sure you obey God? No. I'm asking you to make sure you believe God. That you trust Him. Because where you do not trust Him, sin enters in. If you see in your life there is constant sin, continual sin, it is because you do not believe God about something. What is it that is that besetting sin that you keep going back to? Ask yourself, why are you doing it? At the heart, if you examine your life, if you tend to your heart, you will find at the root there is something you do not believe about God. And therefore you're going to this sin to find satisfaction in your soul. If you do not have one another, there are a slew of scriptures you cannot do. First John 4.11, you can't love one another. You can't welcome one another, Romans 15.7. You cannot have the same care for one another, 1 Corinthians 12, 25. 1 Peter 4, 10, you cannot serve one another. Ephesians 5, 21, you cannot submit to one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, you cannot do good to one another. Ephesians 4, 32, you can't be kind or tenderhearted to one another. We see time and time again that if you're not with one another, then you're missing out on the commands of Scripture. I liken it to 
rock climbing. Technically, you can be a rock climber without using rope. I've done it once. And that was enough. Because somewhere along the way, you realize what's at stake. That all your weight are on your fingers and on your toes. And it strikes you how foolish it is. And so the next time I went out, I made sure I had rope with me. Let me ask you. Someone said, well, I can be a believer and not be a member of church. Not for long. Not for long. God has used the church as the vessel of grace to affix you to the rock of Christ. As I'm walking in life and I'm climbing a rock, I'm climbing Christ. I want to make sure I've got a firm hold on my hands and my feet. But if my hands and my feet are weakened and fall, let me ask you, brother and sister, will you be my rope? Will you be my rope? And who is the rope for you? Let's pray.